Anyone ever asked you if you have aspirations of preaching like Jesus, you say no. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks uh, in his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, about the deadly enemy of the church. He says the deadly enemy of the church is cheap grace. I, I love that idea, but I want to play with it a little bit this morning. I want to think um, if the deadly enemy of the church is cheap grace, the deadly enemy of the church's work is cheap peace, cheap peace. We, we talked a little bit last week about um, how we uh, live out the prophetic vision, how we get to this coming world that God promises and that the world calls us to, to get there by winning through power and that Scripture calls us to get there through peacemaking. Um, but, but I think one of the great dangers to our work is, is cheap peace. So what does cheap peace mean? Uh, there's an author named Melody Stanford Martin who has a book called Brave Talk, and she tells a story in her own life about what this experience was like. She says that when she was in high school, she was the president of a student club, and one of the fellow officers in the club didn't appreciate the way that she was going about some of her leadership. And instead of talking to her directly, that person sent an email to all 200 people on their list outlining the ways that Melody was incompetent. And they used that word, incompetent. You can imagine that this um, blindsided her. She said she felt humiliated. Uh, and so, in response, Melody said, I approached a couple of adults who I respected, and I asked for advice on what to do. Both adults told me to let it blow over, just to take the hit. I followed their advice. The weekly attendance of the club shrank from over 100 kids to 11. This day, when someone asks me to be in charge of something, my heart skips a beat in panic. When I think about that memory, the most painful part is not the kid who sent the email. Kids do inconsiderate things, and maybe I wasn't the best leader. What hurts is how those adults failed to counsel me in a meaningful way. They basically said, it's totally healthy to pretend everything is fine. I was taught to embrace cheap peace in a way that hurt my confidence and my concept of leadership. I was taught that avoiding conflict was okay. Something about being that passive felt wrong. That's cheap peace. Right? And I think we're tempted into cheap peace in all kinds of ways in our life. Uh, we're tempted into cheap peace when we choose to be nice over being loving. We are tempted at a cheap peace when we choose to preserve the status quo, even when it's not good, then risk the change that shaking the boat might bring. Uh, we, we live and, and hope in cheap peace uh, when we cover over rather than make better the problems we're having, when we begin to believe the lies we tell ourselves rather than the uncomfortable truth about ourselves, right? Those are all ways that we live into that cheap peace. Prophets are not good at cheap peace. Prophets have a tendency to call people out. Uh, they have a recognition that to find real peace requires confrontation. Uh, and so we come to this incredible weird story about Jesus coming home to Nazareth. At this point, Jesus has been wandering Galilee a little bit, and He's done some miracles, and He's become famous. And so when it comes home to His hometown, it's a big deal. People are really excited. And you can tell in the beginning, 
there's a good vibe in the room. I mean, people are excited to hear from him. He picks up the Scripture. They like the Scripture he he picks. He says the this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and they're thinking, yes, like we want to believe the Messiah is coming. We want to believe that you're the Messiah. How cool would it be if like one of our hometown kids was that guy? And, and if Jesus had just stopped there, right, if He had just stopped after He said, hey, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, I'm the Messiah, it would have been like the high water mark of their little Nazarene lives, but, but Jesus isn't satisfied with doing that. I, I think Jesus recognizes um, that He needs to bring some confrontation to disrupt their cheap peace. So He says, I know you want me to do miracles and that would be cool. I'm not going to do that. And then He gives two sentences, two illustrations, one sentence each about Elijah and Elisha. And in two sentences, they move from this is the best sermon ever to let's murder this guy. And and so we got to unpack those just briefly, those sentences, because they're really important. So uh, Jesus is talking to the people of His hometown about Messiah. Uh, And I hope you notice some of the things in the scroll of Isaiah we read today, right? It's this great news to Jerusalem, to to Zion, to the people of God, that um, there's going to be good news, there's going to be binding up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, all this jubilee is coming, um, and a day of vengeance for our God, right, for our enemies, um, that foreigners will have to work for you instead of you working for foreigners, that you will enjoy the wealth of the nations instead of the nations taking your wealth. Um, because you were ashamed, um, I will lift you up and they will be ashamed. And so when Jesus reads this passage in Isaiah, they think, yeah, this is exactly what we want from the Messiah. And then Jesus says, I'm not sure Messiah is coming for you. I'm not sure you're the people that Messiah is interested in saving or rescuing or lifting up. I'm not sure you're the faithful ones that God will send Messiah to. Because let's think back. Remember the greatest prophet of all time, Elijah? Who did he get sent to? Not the unfaithful people of Israel, but a Gentile woman in another country. Maybe Messiah will be like that. Or remember the second greatest prophet of all time, Elijah's disciple, Elisha? Uh, He was sent not to heal all the lepers in Israel, but to this foreign general, another Gentile, Naaman. Maybe Messiah will be like that. And you got to understand, for a people who have lived believing that their purpose is to hold on to faithfulness against the world until a time when Messiah comes back and rescues them and punishes everybody else, this is not the message you want to hear from a guy running around doing miracles. In a nutshell, Jesus says, I think it's possible that your whole identity and your whole understanding of God is completely wrong. And so they say, all right, well, we're going to kill you because we're not ready to hear that. We're not interested in hearing that maybe we've misunderstood our purpose as the people of God. We're not ready to hear that perhaps the purpose of the people of God is to be a blessing to the nations and not just to endure the nations. We're not ready to hear that our response to you will define our eternity. So they try to kill him. And I think in this moment, Jesus is 
is pushing this agenda, right? This agenda which says, uh, I'm not going to settle um, for just being nice. I'm not interested in you being fine. I'm not looking for cheap peace. I'm willing to have as much confrontation as it takes to get through this to, to something real. Sometimes that confrontation is literally a matter of life and death. You guys know that I'm a Steve Martin fan, uh, and I, I particularly like this movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, and there's a particular scene in this movie that I just love. I come back to all the time. Uh, so John Candy and Steve Martin are in a car, and they are driving home, and Martin's asleep. Candy is driving, and he gets his parka stuck on the seatbelt. And he, then he gets his other arm stuck, and he can't reach the wheel, and he drives off the road, and Martin wakes up. It doesn't matter. The, the moral of the story is he gets back on the road going on the interstate in the wrong direction, okay? And that's where we're going to pick up with this clip. Look at that guy on the wrong side of the highway. He's going to kill somebody. Joker wants to race. Don't race. That's ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down. You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way. What? You're going the wrong way. He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. You're going in the wrong direction. You're going to kill somebody. You're going the wrong way! What? Fuck. Why? Ah! My family quotes this all the time. You're going the wrong way. How do they know where we're going? Um, so I, I think this is the message that Jesus brings to the people of Nazareth. And I think uncomfortably, it's the same message He brings to us. Right? Um, see, we want to say, boy, we just need a little bit of improvement, right? I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I got a, a couple of bad habits I could work on, but I, I drop a bad habit, I pick up a good one, and I'm, I'm squared away, right? I just need one more um, accolade or one more promotion, one more feel-good moment. I just need one more prayer or one more spiritual habit, just one more something and I'll be good. And Jesus says, hey, this isn't an issue about whether you need to change lanes or speed up or slow down. You're going the wrong way. 
Your, your life is in the wrong direction. It's, it's fundamentally self-centered. And I need you to get off the road and turn around with me. That's the message he brings to the people of his hometown. I know you think Messiah is this thing. It's going to be something totally different. And if you want to get on board with Messiah, you got to get off the road and turn around. And I think one of the hardest things for us as the people of God is recognizing that he's not interested in incremental change, right? God wants transformation. Daniel Strickland says it like this, God is relentless in redemption. He won't stop. Every evil thought and action, every trauma and loss, every hole and heartache, God wants to redeem. Nothing that happens, nothing is outside God's redemptive desires. It doesn't mean He wills the evil. Rather, He wills the defeat of every evil. But it is a defeat more complete and thorough than our poor human hearts can conceive. Jesus isn't for you or against you. He's for the new you. Jesus realizes that for us to be caught up in this vision of the, of the people of God and the kingdom of God means that we need some confrontation. Right? We got to get out of this cheap peace. We got to recognize that to follow Jesus means uh, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him daily. And that those who want to save their lives will lose them, but those who lose their lives for His sake will gain them. Jesus wants a whole life change. So um, maybe this is a season for you to say, boy, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of incremental stuff, right? I've, I've been working real hard to just add a little bit of good behavior and get rid of a little bit of bad behavior. And maybe it's time for me to say, no, I, I need to get off the highway of self-sustaining self-completion, self-identity, self-centeredness, and i got to turn around completely and say, Jesus, I need you to rewrite my life. I need you to reorder who I am, and I want to be only the person that I'm, I am when I'm with you, right? When you're with me, when you're in me. Or, or maybe you say, Jim, I've already done that, right? I've already made that life-changing decision. Um, and if that's the case, that's awesome, but I think even after we've made those decisions, we still need to be confronted um, about our willingness to settle for cheap peace in, in individual areas of our life. I, I come back to this passage in Isaiah and this beautiful vision of the, of the Jubilee. Um, I mentioned earlier that the Jubilee was supposed to occur every 50 years. And when it happened, everybody that um, had sold their ancestral land would get their land back. Everybody that had been sold into slavery for their own debts would be set free. Anybody that owed anybody money, all those debts just went away. It was a radical idea. And as far as we know, even though it's instructed in Scripture, it never happened. There's no record in the Bible or outside the Bible of the Jubilee year ever actually occurring. And I think the reason is everybody thought it was too dramatic, right? Right? wait a minute, you want me to give the land back? I've had this land for 35 years. I've had it for 45 years. I can't give it back. And, and I think we say, no, I just need a, just a, a smaller, we can do a little bit. God, I don't want to get off the highway. Let's just do a little bit of change. And I think there are, are, there are places in our lives where we say, boy, yeah, I know that's not who I want to be, but I'm just going to work on those, those small changes. I don't want to do anything big. Uh, I remember 
uh, uh, one of those moments where God confronted me. I was uh, 18, 19? It was my, my first year of college, and it was my second day. Uh, and I was on my first day of college, like I think most people, I was pretty nervous, right? I mean, I didn't know anybody, and I'm getting to know people, and I'm making friends, trying to unpack in my room. Just, just, it was stressful. My second day of college, I decided, you know, I really, I need to get out there. I got to meet some people. I got to, I got to get out of my bubble here. Uh, and so that evening, I was walking down the hall, and I, I went into a, a dorm room with some people I'd met the day before, and they were all drinking. And it was a freshman dorm, and we were all freshmen, but, you know, okay. I was like, well, I'm, I've had alcohol before. I can do this. So I sat down with those guys, and I started having a beer, and I had another one, and I had a lot of beers. Um, and um, in fact, I, 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 got, I got pretty hammered. Uh, we, we left the dorm room to go dancing um, at a club off, off campus, and I was I'm probably as drunk as I've ever been, but apparently still not drunk enough to enjoy dancing. Um, so I left and went outside the, the club, and there was a group of people I didn't know at all. And so I walked up to them, and I was very confident because of all that alcohol, and I introduced myself and was sure they wanted to be my friend, and talked with them for a while, walked back to the dorm with them. Uh, sometime now, it's the wee hours of the morning, sometime I realized I probably should be heading home. And I, I left their dorm, and I had no idea where I was. Remember, it was my only second day on campus. I, I didn't know how to get from where they were to where I lived. And I started walking, and I just I picked the direction. I started walking and walking and couldn't find anything that looked familiar. Still pretty confused. And I remember very clearly there was a, there was a tree in the middle of a parking lot, and I said, I'm going to walk over to that tree. And if I can't figure out where I'm going from that tree, I'm just going to sleep there tonight. And then I'll wake up in the morning, the sun will be up, and I'll probably be able to figure out where I am. And, and I, wa- I walked to that tree uh, with every intention of just laying down on it. And um, for God's grace, I saw something in the distance that looked familiar. And I followed that into the next thing, to the next thing. I made it back to my dorm. And I got to sleep in my bed instead of under that tree. And I, I woke up the next morning. And it was overwhelmingly clear to me that incremental change was not what I needed. It's overwhelmingly clear to me that I didn't need to handle my liquor better or, or have a, a couple less beers, right? But that that needed to be the last experience of alcohol in my life. Uh, and, and praise God, um, I, I was able to say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm never going back to that. Um, and, and, and I look back on that and I realize well, what a blessing it was for me uh, that that next day um, I went down to the school activities fair on the campus, a little bit hungover, and um, I found all these Christian groups um, that um, became my home base for the next four years. Right? Uh, and um, that in that moment, I had to make a choice about what was going to define my college experience. Was it going to be the night beforehand, or was it going to be these Christian community? And, and I had this, this Holy Spirit moment of confrontation to say, I, I can't do that again, like ever, even a little bit. Uh, and I think... This is really critical for us, um, that um, it's not about baby steps sometimes. When God calls us to, to change up our lives, sometimes it's, it's about completely redirecting the course of who we are. So I want to ask you just two questions this morning. I want to ask you first, um, 
If Jesus could say any two sentences to you, what would He say? What would be the two sentences? It only took two sentences to totally upend His whole hometown. He knows you as well as He knows them. What would the two sentences that Jesus might say to you today be um, that would bring a confrontation with your compromise? And second, what cheap peace do you need Jesus to shatter so you can find real shalom? Uh, I want to say one last thing. Um, I, I, I recognize I read this story and my inclination is to think about Christ confronting me, right, or, or Christ confronting you. Um, but there is a component of this idea that sometimes we as followers of Christ are called to confront others. And we'll talk more about this um, maybe in a future Sunday um, but I just want to say one detail about that, and it comes back to this idea of how we win, that, that in those situations where I'm called to confront others, I do it um, with a guy who has a log in my own eye. I do it with a guy who recognizes that I am so much in need of Christ's correction that I got to be really gentle about, about inviting you into that correction as well. And I do it with the goal not of winning, but of making peace. So come back for a moment to the end of the story in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus preaches this sermon. He starts out super popular. He confronts them about their identity. He calls them to radical change. They don't like it. They try to kill him. They march him up to a hill with murderous intent, and it seems miraculously he just passes through the midst and disappears. What are they left to look at? just themselves, right? just looking around at themselves. And I wonder what that moment was like after Jesus left and they said, what did He say that so tore us up that we were willing to kill this kid we've known our whole lives? And I think the purpose of Jesus that day wasn't to make them angry in the synagogue. It was to make them on that hill reflect on who they are and who God was calling them to be. By the way, uh, in two and a half more years, Jesus would be led up on another hill by people with murderous intent. And that time, He wouldn't walk away. But He becomes the way for us to experience the true peace of God. And so my hope for you today is if you've never made that radical change, that you might today consider that Christ is calling you not to improvement, but to transformation. And if you have made that commitment to follow Jesus, my prayer is that you'd reflect on where in your life you're settling. Where are you settling for cheap peace? And where is God calling you to, to real shalom? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your work in our midst. We thank You for um, the willingness of Your Son to confront us, to call us to new lives, to remind us um, that while we think we have it all together, we're going the wrong way. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to turn around and, and drive and live and love with You, and not just uh, on the big moment of our salvation decision, but on every little moment of our life with You, God, we pray uh, that every time our selfishness gets behind the wheel, You would call us um, and we would turn and follow You because You are the way 
and the truth and the life. Amen.